Hi, this is David Flowers, senior pastor at Grantham Church, an intergenerational convergent third-way congregation with the Brethren in Christ U.S., and located in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast and for following the sermons that I and many others preach at Grantham. This is a free podcast, and it'll always be that way, but if you'd like to give and help further the work we're doing for the kingdom, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you want to do that, you can do that by going to granthamchurch.org and clicking on the Giving tab. Whether you're a member of our church or you're listening as a parishioner, it's our greatest desire that you would encounter Jesus and be changed by the good news wherever you are. Anyway, God bless you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. As always, it's good to see you in worship today. This is week three of our Lent to Easter series, Broken Signpost, and we have been looking at signposts in the human experience that point us beyond ourselves and beyond this world. Signposts that point to God and Christ and the good news and ultimately to a coming of a new world, the coming of a new world. As N.T. Wright says, how Christianity makes sense of the world. That's the subtitle of his book, Broken Signpost, the book that inspired this series. Wright says that every worldview must explain seven signposts that we, are, we presently experience as broken and unattainable. Those words are here behind me on the back wall. Justice, love, spirituality, beauty, freedom, truth, and power. And so in Wright's book, Broken Signpost, he argues that Christianity presents a compelling and relevant explanation for why these signposts are broken, but also how these markers point to the crucifixion, the resurrection of Jesus as the start of new creation. Or to use C.S. Lewis's language, it's through these signposts and longings that we discover that we're made for another world. As the scriptures tell us, a redeemed and resurrected world, a new heaven, and a new earth. And so, so far in this series, we've given attention to the first two signposts, justice and beauty. Next up, our focus for this morning is the broken signpost of spirituality. Now, if you were looking in your bulletin this morning, you saw the sermon uh, summary was actually from last week. I'm not going to preach that message again. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, but remember, if you miss any of the messages in this series, you can go back and listen at our website or on the go uh, through our podcast. I'll do a brief summary of each of these, these uh, messages, uh, these broken signposts on Easter Sunday. But until, until then, you'll have to keep up and keep afresh with us each week so you can follow along and get the full picture of these signposts combined. Before we go any further, would you pray with me? Father, we once again come to you in prayer, and we ask, Lord, specifically that you would help us to open up our hearts and our minds. Lord, help us to put aside, or rather to give to you, our unrest, our cynicism, our critical spirit. Any obstacle, Lord, that stands between us and an encounter with you this morning. Holy Spirit, speak to us for your servants are listening. And all of God's people said, amen. The Hidden Spring of Spirituality, that is the title of the message this morning. And the idea comes from Tom Wright's book, Simply Christian. And I'm going to read an excerpt from that uh, to, to begin us off here. 
This is from his book, Simply Christian, the, the classic of which the broken signpost book uh, sort of expounds upon. The, in, in his book, Simply Christian, he talks about echoes of a voice so that there's, there's a true voice, of course, being the voice of God as we see in Jesus and we hear through the gospel. Uh, and these, these, these words up here could also be seen as echoes, as that's how he talks about it in this book. But he also hints at the idea of signposts, and that's why he has written the other books. So this is an excerpt from the book, Simply Christian, uh, from the chapter entitled The Hidden Spring. He says, there was once a powerful dictator who ruled his country with an iron will. Every aspect of life was thought through and worked out according to a rational system. Nothing was left to chance. The dictator noticed that the water sources around the country were erratic and in some cases dangerous. There were thousands of springs of water, often in the middle of town and cities. They could be useful, but sometimes they caused floods, sometimes they got polluted, often they burst out in new places and damaged roads, fields, and houses. So the dictator decided on a sensible, rational policy. The whole country, or at least every part where there was any suggestion of water, would be paved over with concrete so thick that no spring of water could ever penetrate it. The water that people needed would be brought to them by a complex system of pipes. Furthermore, the dictator decided he would use the opportunity while he was at it to put into the water various chemicals that would make the people healthy. With the dictator controlling the supply, everyone would have what he decided they needed and there wouldn't be any more nuisance from unregulated springs. Sounds nice. For many years, the plan worked just fine. People got used to their water coming from the new system. It sometimes tasted a bit strange and from time to time they would look back wistfully to the bubbling streams and fresh springs they used to enjoy. Some of the problems that people had formerly blamed on unregulated water hadn't gone away. It turned out that the air was just as polluted as the water had sometimes been, but the dictator couldn't or didn't do much about that. But mostly the new system seemed efficient. People praised the dictator for his forward-looking wisdom. A generation passed. All seemed to be well. Then, without warning, the springs that had gone on bubbling and sparkling beneath the solid concrete could no longer be contained. In a sudden explosion, Wright says, a cross between a volcano and an earthquake, they burst through the concrete that people had come to take for granted. Muddy, dirty water shot into the air and rushed through the streets and into houses, shops and factories. Roads were torn up. Whole cities were in chaos. Some people were delighted. At last, they could get water again without depending on the system. But the people who ran the official water pipes were at a loss. Suddenly, everyone had more than enough water, but it wasn't pure and it couldn't be controlled. Wright says, we in the Western world are the citizens of that country. The dictator is the philosophy that has shaped our world for the past two or more centuries, making most people materialists by default. And the water is what we today call spirituality, the hidden spring that bubbles up within human hearts and human societies. And folks, this is what happens and has happened in our secular age of scientism, of materialism, 
and a political idolatry that has treated religion and spirituality as if it isn't all that important. It's not essential to being human. It's only for those who find it helpful and are into those kinds of things. That is until Islamic extremists use airplanes as weapons against symbols of America or white Christian nationalists storm the Capitol. Then we start talking about it. Because for most enlightened folks, especially for the powerful elite, religion and spirituality are what Karl Marx referred to as the opiate of the people. It's only really there to numb the pain, to comfort us in our uncertainties and escape from the politics and the problems of the world. So you had Marx coming at it through politics, and then you also have Nietzsche, who questioned whether or not God was dead, and through philosophy influencing us with this thinking. And then there, of course, was, was Freud through psychology and sexuality. And while being a deist and a secular humanist isn't quite the same thing, <laughs> still this thinking has impacted Western thought to one extent or another, particularly in the founding of our own country where God is seen either as a tribal deity or an absentee landlord. Listen to what Wright says in his book, Broken Signposts. He says, from the 18th century onward, popular Western culture has largely relegated religion to the private sphere, and this has allowed many aspects of social, public, and political life to proceed on the basis of a functional atheism. <laughs> Think about that, a functional atheism. God is out of the picture. In fact, he seems to have retired to an upstairs attic and hasn't been seen for quite some time, right? Because he's the man upstairs. So we get on with running the world downstairs without him. And we don't need religion to do that. And so when this happens and when churches and other religious institutions have become hypocritical, have become judgmental, lifeless, out of touch with the culture, and irrelevant, among other things, and are unable to articulate and embody the gospel as faithful witnesses in troubling times, there is inevitably an explosion of spirituality in the middle of the chaos. Think about this with me, because I think this rightfully describes what happened in the late 1960s and early 70s. You can look at the picture there on your screen and probably some of you will recognize a lot of those images. You see, it was during the time of the late 1960s and the early 70s, the hidden springs of spirituality exploded despite the paved concrete of fundamentalist religion, despite the power of political and religious institutions that sought to regulate and control the culture. And remember the context that set the pot to boiling in the first place. Think about the context. Back in the context of the 1960s and 70s, the wealth and prosperity in the aftermath of World War II, the growing military-industrial complex, the Vietnam War, the civil rights movement, the Cuban Missile Crisis, assassinations of JFK, RFK, and MLK, and political scandals that divided the country and created a desperate desire among the younger generation to either escape 
the madness through sex, drugs, and rock and roll, or transcend it through new spiritual experiences that couldn't be found within the status quo of American religion and her country club churches. And so, it's during this time we see everything from the rise of the occult and cult leaders like Charles Manson and Jim Jones to the experimentation with Eastern religions, as the Beatles did, and through drugs to open the doors of perception. (laughs) Some of you familiar with that book and that band, right? In an effort to open people's minds and to touch, maybe to touch the divine, all the way to a real, as we would say in the church, a real outpouring of God's Spirit through what is known as the Jesus Movement. And some of you may have seen that movie recently, Jesus Revolution, that captures a a part of that movement. Yes, there were some polluted waters flowing through that era, but we should see this as a result of what happens when you try to pave over the fact that we are spiritual beings with spiritual problems in need of a spiritual solution. Amen? When the hidden spring finally bursts, there's going to be some sewage that comes up with it. It's not pretty. And spiritual evil will be at work in sinful humanity to steal, kill, and destroy. And just remember, and I said this in my revival message a few weeks ago, when God moves folks that there's always the good, the bad, and the crazy. Right? It's never going to be perfect. Look around. Look at yourself in the mirror. We're all broken and not as we should be. And this is all God has to work with. So, sorry to crash your idealism, but this is the way that God works in our reality. So I hope that we don't sit back in cynicism and critical spirits and miss what God is doing because of that. But again... Don't forget the Jesus movement. It was a a spiritual revolution that began outside of traditional churches. And it happened through the last group of people you would expect. Hippies. (laughs) Hippies who had had their fill of American empire and the waters of hedonism and were willing to try Jesus. And the Spirit of God blew through the nation in an unforgettable way. The Spirit is mysterious like that, just as John tells us, or as Jesus tells us in the book of John. If you would, open up to John chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. John chapter 3. We're going to read verses 1 through 8. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. You can follow along with whatever you have. If you've grown up in the church, you'll probably be familiar with this conversation. It's the conversation in which Jesus says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Chapter 3, verse 1. There was a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee. Verse 2. After dark one evening, he came to speak with Jesus. Now, why would John tell us that? That's important. Two things. After dark, he didn't want to be seen with Jesus. (laughs) 
Yeah, he has real legitimate questions, but he's a Pharisee. Jesus is not a Pharisee and has so far not been aligning himself, his, himself with them. So Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. But also there's another part to this. In the Gospel of John, John is always comparing light and darkness. So he seems to say something about this scene that it happens at night under the cover of darkness. Maybe referring to unbelief, a bit of skepticism on the part of Nicodemus. Rabbi, he said, which means teacher. We all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. Now, what Nicodemus is going to fail to see here is that he's not just a teacher. But the Gospel of John wants us to see that Jesus is the very presence of God with us. Remember in chapter 1, the Word became what? Flesh, and he dwelled among us. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. This is like Jesus. He doesn't beat around the bush. He just goes straight to the point. He just goes straight to the heart of the Gospel. I tell you the truth, unless you are born again, some translations may say born from above. That's, that's another acceptable translation. Born from above, you cannot see the kingdom of God. You can't see it. What's Jesus saying? I, I think we need to know that it's very likely Nicodemus would, would have heard that Jesus is saying it doesn't matter what family you were born into. It doesn't, mean, it doesn't matter if you are the children of Abraham, seeds of the promise. That's not enough. It's not enough. Look what Nicodemus says. What do you mean? How can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? And you may be thinking, is he serious? Does he really think that's what Jesus meant? Though Nicodemus is a wise teacher, he misses the spiritual meaning. And so Jesus replied, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and of spirit. Water and spirit. We've already seen this, and you'll see this in the Gospels. Water refers to life and, and baptism, which will become clear in the next chapter. This water of life and of baptism. Just as the Hebrew people had to pass through the waters during the Exodus, so must the people of God in the New Testament pass through the waters to be his people and to be saved. And Jesus is referring here to a, a regeneration of the Holy Spirit, by the Spirit. Look at verse 6. He says, human, humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, I'm talking about a spiritual birth. I'm talking about a spiritual birth. We've all been born. No, we can't hop back in our mother's womb, but we must be born again from above. So don't be surprised when I say you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it wants, just as you can hear the wind, but can't tell where it comes from or where it is going, so you can't explain how people are born of the Spirit. Jesus is saying, expect mystery, Nicodemus. Expect wonder. Expect the unexpected with God, how he works and who he saves. Just as the Spirit unexpectedly and wondrously worked through the hippies of the 1960s and 70s, we should be open to what God wants to do today and how He may work through unanticipated means. Again, think about it. In our day, we continue to see in many ways the resulting impacts of the 1960s and 70s. 
the term spiritual really began to take off at that time. Nobody was really going around saying, I'm a spiritual person. And now people say they're spiritual, but what? Not religious. Of course, much of this is rooted uh, in a radical individualism that offers us, offers us total control over our identity and meaning, which like the Gnostic heresy, some of you may be familiar with Gnosticism in the second, second third centuries of the church, which, which posed a credible threat to the growing Christian movement. This Gnosticism was a heresy which basically said, spirit is all that matters, matter doesn't matter, that's all going to burn, that's all going to go away, it's going to be discarded of. Now, that sounds a lot like some evangelicals' views. <laughs> but this is not Christianity, no. The Gnostic heresy of the early centuries of the church would tell people to look within and you'll find everything you need. But folks, this is contrary to the gospel. For when we look to the wells of the world or even the well of our own soul, we eventually find them dried up. And like America several decades ago, we're seeing another explosion as the hidden springs of spirituality burst wide open. We see it in TV and movies. We see it at the Grammys. We see it in the rise of paganism, astrology, and witchcraft. Um, about a year ago, I was in line at Wise, and there was a cashier with a pentagram hanging around her neck, which is an occult satanic symbol. And so I didn't have a lot of time to think about it, but as uh, I was there talking with her in, in the line, I said, well, that's, I said, knowing what it is, uh, that's an interesting symbol. What does that mean to you? And she said, oh, She's kind of taken back. She probably doesn't have many people ask her what, what, you know, what that is. She said, well, it's a symbol of power, to be powerful. Now, I, I didn't think about it on the spot. I just continued to be nice. And as I, you know, this is how this works. You grab your groceries, you walk out the door, and you're like, I wish I would have said that. And I wish I would have said one thing in, in, in kindness. How's that working for you? We see this rise of religious and political conspiracies as the springs burst open from being paved. Extremists and cults, as more people check none as their religious affiliation, there's a growing hunger for the transcendent. There's a desperation among young people as, as, uh, as seen more recently through the outpouring at Asbury and now beyond as it's spreading to other college campuses. And so as the American empire fractures and people increasingly become jaded and disillusioned with life, there's a growing discontentment that drives people to search and to seek out meaning. Does that make sense? This is, this is what happens. And some eventually consider spiritual things and look for a way forward, and they might not even know it. Those desires are for the source of true spirituality. So, you know, you, you can look at things going on in the world, whether it's Asbury or whether it's a girl in the checkout line wearing a, wearing a satanic symbol around her neck, and you can, you can get cynical, you can get skeptical and critical, or uh, you, you can be judgmental. You, you can do that. I saw a lot of that growing up as an evangelical. You can do that. 
Or you can look at that as one symptom and an expression of the overflowing, right, of the springs bursting up. There's going to come some muddy water. There are going to be some things that happen that we may not like, but you can judge it or you can see it as an opportunity. God is at work. People are hungry. People are thirsty for the living God. But instead, they're drinking sewage from the muddy springs. Hmm. These desires, as I said, folks, are for the source of true spirituality, the only way to God. Perhaps now more than ever, we need to hear these words of Jesus, even though they may make us uncomfortable. You know, Jesus said some hard things. This is one of them. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In the Greek there, it's, I know most of you probably don't read Greek, but you look what I have highlighted there. Ego, I, me. Ego is a pronoun, it means I. I means it to be verb. I am. The reason why it is put this way in the Greek is to be emphatic. It doesn't come across that way in the English, which is why you've probably heard me say before, Jesus saying, I myself am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Do you hear what Jesus is doing? Jesus is both the embodiment of God the Father and the way to him. This isn't to say that people can't connect with God and not realize that Jesus is the one that enables the connection. But listen, the New Testament is clear that there's no other name in heaven or on earth by which people can be saved. And that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. That should sound familiar to you. It should sound familiar to you. And then let's remember what the Apostle Paul said in Romans 10, verse 14. He said, how can they call on him to, to, to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they've never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? So Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. And while that comes across just as exclusive and as intolerant as it did in the day it was written in the time of the Roman pantheon, mind you, we humbly proclaim that we believe it to be true. You know, John uses lots of metaphors to describe Jesus. Who he is, what he came to do, you know, that is his, his earthly purpose, his cosmic significance. Consider three metaphors as it relates to how Christ is the source and satisfier of true spirituality and our longings for connection to transcendent realities and experiences. Jesus said that he is the temple. You remember um, when he goes and he turns over the tables of the money changers, right? Basically shutting the temple down. And the religious leaders come to Jesus and say, who do you think you are? Who gives you the authority to do this? And Jesus says, you'll know the one that gives me the authority to do this just by this. Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll rebuild it. Of course, what do they do? They're like, ha, 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 ha. 
It's taken years for, for us to build this temple. Are you going to destroy it in three days and rebuild it? What's Jesus talking about, though? John actually tells us. He gives us some commentary there. Jesus wasn't talking about the stinking building. He's talking about his body. He's talking about himself, and that became clear to the disciples later on. You think about that, right? The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. John told us that, John chapter 1, verse 14. That is, Jesus is the tabernacle in the wilderness. Jesus is God made flesh walking with us. And here Jesus refers to himself not just a tabernacle, but as a temple. Jesus is the place where heaven and earth meet. <laughs> what a wonderful image. You know, we, we, we had the Old Testament temple that represented that. But Jesus is it for us in the new covenant. But he's also the vine. Uh, I was recently reminded, I don't know if I heard this before, but I came across this in my preparation. There, there supposedly was a, a vine that was carved on s- some of the walls of the temple. Now think about that. And then Jesus says, maybe as he was passing by it on the way to the garden, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you abide in me and I in you, you'll do great things. But apart from me, what? You can do nothing. Jesus is the temple. Jesus is the true vine. It's how we stay spiritually connected to Jesus and bear fruit of his life. And then, of course, the metaphor of living water. Living water. In ancient times, living water meant flowing water. Water that wasn't flowing could be stagnant. It could be insipid. You might not want to drink it. It might cause disease. You don't know, where, who's, you know who's been in that water. Jesus is living water. Jesus is clean. Jesus is pure. Jesus is good. And only Jesus can satisfy our spiritual longings for the transcendent. And I have reference here, John 4, verse 13 to 14. But instead of reading that, let's instead go to where Jesus talks to the woman at the well by watching this moving scene from the TV series, The Chosen. Let's watch that together. Would you give me a drink? Did you hear me? That's bad, huh? What? You, a Jew, ask her to drink from me a Samaritan and a woman. I'm sorry. I should have said please. You know, it's not safe for you to be alone out here. Nor you. Why haven't you come with others? Why so late in the day? Don't women come to the wells in the, the cool of the morning? Yeah, well, none of them will be seen with me, so I have to come at noon. In the heat, as you have so kindly reminded me. Why won't they be seen with you? Long story. I'd, I'd still like a drink of water if you can spare it. Amazing what a parched throat will do. Aren't I unclean to you? Won't you be defiled by this vessel? Maybe some of my people say that about your women, but. I don't. Yeah? And what do you say? I say if you knew who I am, you'd be asking me for a drink. Really? 
and I would give you living water. Wood, except that you have nothing to draw water with, and this is a deep well. Besides, what do you need from me if you have your own supply of living water? Long story. But Jewish water is better than Samaritan water. Hmm? That's not what I said. Are you a better man than our ancestor Jacob, who dug this well? Your water is better than his? I know, Jacob. And everyone who drinks this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. Wouldn't that be nice? The water I give will become in a person a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Really? Yes, really. Prove it. First, go and call your husband and come back. I will show you both. I don't have a husband. You are right. You've had five husbands. And the man you're living with now is not your husband. <laughs> oh, I see. You're a prophet. You're here to preach at me. No. Usually the one good thing about coming here alone is I can escape being condemned. I'm not here to condemn you. I've made mistakes. Too many. But it's men like you who have made it impossible for me to do anything about it. How? Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. But you Jews insist Jerusalem is the only place for true worship. They say that because the temple is there. Yeah. Exactly where we're not allowed. I'm here to break those barriers. And the time is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. So, where am I supposed to go when I need God? I've never received anything from God, but I couldn't thank him even if I did. Anywhere. God is spirit. And the time is coming and is now here. That it won't matter where you worship, but only that you do it in spirit and truth. Heart and mind, that, that is the kind of worshiper he's looking for. It won't matter where you're from or what you've done. Do you believe what I'm telling you? Until the Messiah comes and explains everything and sorts this mess out, including me. I don't trust in anyone. You're wrong when you say that you've never received anything from God. This Messiah you speak of, I am he. The first one was named Ramin. You were a woman of purity who was excited to be married, but he wasn't a good man. He hurt you, and it made you question marriage and even the practice of your faith. Stop it. The second was Farzad. On your wedding night, his skin smelled like oranges. And to this day, every time you pass by the oranges in the market, you feel guilty for leaving him because he was the only truly godly man you've been with. But you felt unworthy. Why are you doing this? 
I have not revealed myself to the public as the Messiah. You are the first. It would be good if you believed me. You picked the wrong person. I came to Samaria just to meet you. <laughs> Do you think it's an accident that I'm, I'm here in the middle of the day? I am rejected by others. I know, but not by the Messiah. And you know these things because you are the Christ. I'm going to tell everyone. I was counting on it. <laughs> Spirit and truth. Spirit and truth. It won't be all about mountains or temples. Soon, just the heart. <laughs> you promised. I promise. This man told me everything I've done. Oh, he must be the Christ! <laughs> Wait! Your water! You forgot your um. Listen again at what Jesus said in John chapter 4, verse 13 and 14. He said, Everyone who drinks this water. This water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So it begs the question, what are the wells in your life that aren't satisfying you? And what does Jesus mean there in verse 14? In receiving Jesus, again and again, he's saying that we have access to the never-ending and ongoing presence and reality of God in Him. And we can share this living water with others. So my friends, let us extend that invitation to those that we meet in the spirit of what David said in Psalm 34, verse 8. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, the joys of those who take refuge in him. Finally, here are some questions to help us reflect and to respond together. Number one, in what ways have you experienced the unfulfilling wells of life? Maybe it's sex or drugs, making money, your career, status. It could be a number of different things. What, what are the wells when you get down to the bottom of it, you know they don't satisfy. They leave you thirsty. What's the Spirit saying to you? Number two, are you trying to fill the God-shaped hole in your heart with lesser things? I mean, good things, but lesser things? of the world? 
What, what is it? What, what, what has your heart and your passions and your obsession? What are you running after to try to fill that hole in your heart? Will you be honest with the Lord about that? Maybe just say it under your breath, what that thing is or who that person is. Just confess that to God. And then number three, how is the Spirit inviting you to come to Christ and discover His peace, His purpose, and His plan for your life and rest for your weary soul? Jesus said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Just as Jesus met this woman at the well, he can meet you where you are and say the same things about your thirst. Brothers and sisters, there is a broken signpost called spirituality. May the Spirit help us to see that its fulfillment is found in Christ. Amen? And would you pray with me? Father, we are so grateful for the words of Jesus, for those red letters. We're so thankful, Lord, that we can know you as the living Christ the same Jesus who spoke to Nicodemus and spoke to the Samaritan woman at the well, you want to speak to us. You want to give us living water. Holy Spirit, I, I pray that you would move in this room now as we respond to you, as we listen to your voice and do whatever it is you're calling us to do, that we might run away leaping for joy as this woman did to tell others about it. For it's in Christ's name that we pray these things. Amen. To help us respond as we've been doing the last few weeks, uh, we've been responding to the message by artistically depicting the word of the day, today being spirituality, on a cardboard signpost. So during this closing song, you're invited to come to one of the art stations. We've got two up front. There's one in the back, if that's closer for you. And create the word on the signpost in a way that's meaningful to you. You can either drop the signpost in the baskets there at the table or on the back on your way out, or you can take it home and, and decorate it and color it, whatever you want to do. Uh, do that at home and then bring it back the next week. As you can see on the side wall over here, we're displaying these signposts each week to show our commitment as a congregation to the way of Jesus. So as we sing the next song, you're invited to come forward to one of these art stations, to come to these altars to pray, or pray wherever you're seated. Let's respond together in obedience to the Spirit. Mm -hmm.